Dear M-N-O's and P's, we will have you to our house. We uh, started before the pandemic having folks with different letters of their last name out of the house, and uh, thanks to that disruption, we left out that little section that we, before we start over again, we wanted to have the MNs, O's, and P's in the house for the first time, and I guess they call it weather for a reason. Whether or not it's true, it'll happen, so we will make up that to you as soon as we find another empty spot on the calendar, but we look forward to having you there. Wendell Winkler died in October of 2005. He was one of my mentors, uh, uh, the head of the Bible department at Faulkner University when I was there. He uh, continued to be after I went into local work, and I have several letters that I sent to him that were returned to me. His uh, wife, his widow, outlived him by 17 years. She died last year. And uh, as a result of their the sons going through her things, uh, I was very blessed that Brother Dan sent me a little package, Dan being the oldest son of uh, Wendell and Betty Winkler. And in that was a commentary that Wayne Jackson sent to uh, Miss Betty Winkler uh, after Brother Wendell had died. And all the letters I'd ever written to Brother Winkler in time, uh, Dan sent back to me, so they're back in my office. But the greatest treasure that I have is a Bible that Wendell Winkler used in gospel meetings that Dan and Mike thought that he would want me to have. And so it's the first time I've preached with it, but I mention it tonight for a specific reason. There are several things that Brother Wendell Winkler was known for, but I suppose those of us that ever had him in the classroom, one of his biggest pet peeves, his subjects that he would constantly talk about was balance. He would say things like balance keep us, keeps us on the level. And with regard to balance, there's a lot of different ways that that applies. And for those of us he was training to preach, he says make sure that you put a balance between the positive and the negative. There needs to be a balance in your preaching between rebuke and comfort. There needs to be a balance between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the informational and the inspirational, and so many different ways that we were encouraged. Balance our time. And one of the things he encouraged us as men who presumably were going to get married and have children was that there needs to be balance in our home. That we need to be balanced in the time that we spend in nurturing our marriages and our children that are being raised in our homes and the public life that we live, whether in ministry or whatever our occupation. I think we all appreciate balance. You know, Kathy follows the Bowling Green local group there, and they were asking about road conditions tonight, and somebody was talking about how the roads were dangerous. Did you notice that as you came here? I must have been on a different road. They said it was slick as a seal's back. You know, we, we appreciate balance when it's a matter of standing or falling. And I, when I fly, I appreciate a pilot that wants the left and the right wings to be pretty balanced in flying that plane. Balance truly does keep us on the level. But when it comes to our marriages, how is it that we're going to maintain balance? I think it's going to be a series of principles. There are going to be several different elements that can help us to balance out our married life so that we can have the strongest marriages possible. 
We know that the devil would like to do anything that he could to undermine the success and the strength of our homes because if he can tear apart the homes of faithful Christians, then he has a much easier time in reaching those souls that he would like to have fall prey to him. We're going to speak about one of those elements tonight. There was a woman who had a dog that she had to give medicine Each and every day she tried to force a teaspoon of medicine down that dog's throat, but every time that she tried to do it, the dog would resist and would pull away. And one day, in giving that dog the medicine, she accidentally dropped the bottle, and all the medicine went down on the floor. And you know what the dog did? He immediately went to the spot of the medicine and lapped it all up. That dog did not have a problem with the medicine. It was the method. You know, I think sometimes that's how it can be in married life. If I were to ask you what is important in a marriage, whether you're married or not, you would say, wouldn't you, that respect, having the respect of your mate, being in a relationship where you are respected, would be one of those principles that you would put high on the list. And yet even though it's something that we all desire, sometimes we can go about trying to get respect in some very counterproductive ways. We might engage in browbeating, or maybe we will try guilt tripping, or maybe we'll try manipulation. And we're doing this because it's something that we want, and we don't realize that we're undermining the very effect. It may not be the medicine, it may be the method. And yet respect is something that is very powerful in marriage. The Apostle Peter emphasizes this when he writes to a particular part of the congregation in his first letter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. And he says to the Christian woman in that context who was married to a non-Christian husband, he says that you living in a respectful and reverent way can go a long way to being influential. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, he says it's possible for you to win your husband without a word. It's also observable. Peter says that that non-Christian husband is observing the behavior, the respectful behavior of the wife. And it's tangible because by its very nature, it is behavior. As he observes your behavior, he may be one to Christ. Having this respectful, reverent approach to our marriages is certainly something that we ought to have no matter who we're married to. But isn't it even more powerful if the husband and the wife are Christians? But no matter the case, if there's a Christian in that marriage, we're going to appreciate that principle. What I find very interesting is that the word that Peter uses here that is uh, translated respectful is from the word phobos. It is our word, of course, from which we get the word phobia. It is a word that is very often in the New Testament translated fear. Acts chapter 9 and verse 31 says that the early church went on and they grew in the fear of the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28, the Hebrews writer says that we are to worship God with reverence and godly fear. It seems that what Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter 3 is that as that husband, even though he's not a Christian, observes your respectful behavior, the respect and the reverence that you have, the awe for deity that you have, then you're going to reflect that in the respect that you have for your mate. If our mate can look at our life and can see that we have a reverence and respect for God, And if we are using that particular mindset in the way that we deal with one another, 
it can be a very powerful way for us to impact our marriages. What I'd like for us to do is to think about the fact that marriage can make respect very difficult. When you think about what's happening in marriage, what is happening is two different lives are being joined together as one. Two people who come from two very different backgrounds. And there's a mixture of expectations and feelings. And yet God knew from the very beginning, knowing that sin was going to enter into the world, that it's possible for us, as different as we are from one another, to be able to overcome that difficulty that we can have in respecting one another. You see, what can so often happen in a marriage is self gets in the way and pride gets in the way and we may be controlling and dominating. Stephen Annie Chapman wrote a great book called What Husbands and Wives Are Not Telling One Another. And what they both found in interviewing husbands and wives who have been married for a good long time is that both husbands and wives can tend to lack respect for one another and it makes it difficult for that marriage to be what God wants it to be. For example, some of the wives that were interviewed and all of them had been married a double digit number of years, some of them over 30 years. One of the wives says that my husband is a control freak. He has to have control in every area of life. He owns his own business, and when I want to know what's going on in life, he says it's none of my concern. Another woman said with regard to her husband that my husband, if I agree with him, everything is fine. But if I disagree with him, he thinks that I don't love him or that I'm interested in somebody else. I'm concerned that when the children leave home, we're not going to have any common interests together. But men interviewed were saying very similar things. One man said that my wife can be very moody and I never know which woman I'm going to get when I go home. Another man in talking about his marital situation and that lack of respect says that my wife often says things in anger that she later regrets. And another man said with regard to his wife that it's all about her agenda and her timetable and everybody else in the family has to bow to her feelings and agenda. Self and pride can harm any relationship in which we find ourselves. It's the antithesis of the respect that God wants us to have in marriage. That's why the Bible in so many different places is encouraging this mentality that puts others above ourselves. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul says, Let nothing be done through selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility of mind let each esteem others as better than themselves. Look not everyone only on their own interests, but everyone also on the interests of others. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Or in the passage that we saw tonight in Ephesians 5, you'll notice that while we often start the reading in verse 22 and go to verse 33, I believe a proper place for us to begin is in verse 21. Before we ever get to the role of the woman for the husband or the husband for the wife, there's this principle before it. Submit to one another in the fear of Christ. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul says that we are to give consideration to one another. How is it that we in our marriages can have a balanced marriage where respect reigns in both the heart of the husband for the wife and the wife for the husband? I want to look in just three areas tonight and the lesson will be yours. First of all, respect means that we think in a certain way. 
Now, Jesus is trying to get people to understand what it means to follow him. And so he gives in what would be the preamble or the introduction to the greatest sermon ever preached, the Beatitudes. And one of the Beatitudes toward the end that he gives is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure there is a synonym for holy. And that word pure means good in God's eyes or good as God thinks. You know, Jesus is going to elaborate on that principle later on in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18 through 20, because he says, The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile the man. For all that is in the heart, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders, all these evil things come from within, and they defile the man. As you look through that list, Jesus is not talking about marriage. He's talking about all relationships. But I want you to think about the defiling things that he mentions in that list that are things that can live in the heart and play themselves out in our marriages that are a failure to be respectful. When we think about the respect that we need to have for one another, it begins with what lives and grows and thrives in the heart. Every day we're exposed to a variety of influences. And perhaps as great as any influence is the influence of the world because we're connected to it in so many different ways. William Doherty in a book called Taking Your Marriage Back, he writes about a a principle I think that is so powerful. It's called the consumer marriage. The consumer culture that breeds the consumer marriage. And he says, slowly but surely, the society is helping us to think like a consumer when it comes to our marriage. And we compare our marriage as we do to other big things in our life, like houses and cars. And so we begin in that to think in certain ways that are consumer ways of thinking. Maybe we'll say things like, uh, don't be loyal to what no longer serves your needs. Or maybe we say something like, new is always better than old. Or maybe we ask ourselves, am I getting a good deal? And as I look at my relationship, what about the cost-benefit ratio? Am I getting back as much as I'm putting in? And if not, then maybe it's time for me to look elsewhere. It is very easy for the world to begin to impact our thinking, and it can so easily undermine the respect that we need to have for one another. Some of the things that we might think in those terms are, am I getting my needs met? In a consumer culture, the idea is that it's a market-driven economy and it's about turning wants into needs. It's remarkable to me to think about how so many of the things that used to be considered wants and luxuries in our society have become essentials today. Washers and dryers. I'm not saying that we go back to the washboard, but they used to be something that we thought of as a luxury, but now they're a necessity. Or cars, or phones, or computers. And what can happen is that we begin to think in that way and we exchange in our thinking things that are truly wants and not needs and we ask ourselves in the spirit of Christ, is that the way that we ought to approach that anyway in asking, is mine, are my needs being met? Instead of, am I meeting the needs of my mate? Consumer thinking also causes us to think, I deserve better. In a market economy, we begin to look at what we think that we deserve. I deserve someone better than I have. But when we think that way, what we do is we fail to again invest in what we need to be doing for our mate. 
Uh, I should be married to that one. If only I were married to that one. So often what can happen is that we approach our marriage with dissatisfaction and with a lack of respect and we see someone else and we think maybe if I were married to that one it would be better. But we don't know what it's like to be married to anyone other than our spouse. You have no idea what it's like to live with any person until you're married to them. What we need to do is to more positively and more respectfully more often think about our own mate and our own relationship and how we can enhance that. Or my marriage is not as good as their marriage is. It's a tendency that can happen to us even in an environment so wonderful as the church building. We walk in the door and as we do, we see happy couples all around us and we see the love between them and we think, well, if my marriage was as good as that, why isn't my marriage as good as that? And we have no idea what's going on and it breeds envy and dissatisfaction with the relationship that we're in. Or perhaps what we think is my spouse is a flawed person. And the thing is, you get a new spouse, you get a different set of flaws. And whatever trade-ups that you might get in that relationship, there are going to be some difficulties that you did not anticipate. Another idea is, I'm the good guy here. That's consumer thinking. We have a powerful trend and inclination to engage in self-justification. When there are difficulties in our marriage relationship, we may try to magnify what our spouse is doing and try to minimize our contribution to the particular problems that we're having in marriage. You see, the approach that we ought to take in not having a consumer worldly-minded thought is what can I do to help build up my spouse? And we'll say more about that in a moment. This consumer thinking is a weed. And we need to trace the weed to the roots. And when we do, we find the spiritual pollution is coming from the world's definitions, the world's values, and the world's concept of what makes happiness in a marriage relationship. And understanding that that's how the world thinks, we understand the end ways of the world. Proverbs 16 and verse 25, uh, the, the things that man thinks, man's ways are ways that end in death. If I want to have the balance in my marriage that comes from respecting my mate, it begins with what I let live and thrive in my heart. We must think in respectful ways. But respect also is reflected in how we talk to one another. When you think about the fight that we have with our own flesh and our own spirit, to be disrespectful in our relationship with our mate, A lot of the problems that we encounter in failing to be respectful can be won on that first front if we'll conquer what's going on in the heart. But you'll notice in Jesus' list in Matthew chapter 15 verse 18 through 20 that some of those items are not just heart matters. They're matters of what comes out of the mouth. Mark says it's deception. It's uh, it's, uh, those that railings and several of the things in that list that speak of what we say with our mouth that demonstrate a great disrespect. For others. When we think about speaking in a way that's respectful, I think that that can be broken into three categories. We need to be respectful in our speech in a general way. You know, every one of us is characterized by some kind of speech. People connect us with maybe some uh, habit, some way of speaking that they know in us. 
There's some way that we come about when we speak to others that cause them to remember us and associate that with us. We always want that to be positive. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is talking about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And he encourages us to watch our speech as we are found speaking to other people. Our mate is watching how we treat other people in the ways that we speak to them. And it's not just vulgar speech, Ephesians 4 verse 29 and Ephesians 5 and verse 4. But there are other ways, habits that we can fall into that can erode the respect of our marriage. One of those is uh, the idea of grumbling or complaining or disputing. You know, the Apostle Paul says to the church in Philippians chapter 2, that church that's putting others before self in Philippians 2 verse 14, he says, let all things be done without grumbling and disputing, that you might be the sons of God, blameless and harmless in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And so as we uh, encounter others, we can be remembered forever as those who always had something positive to say. On the other side of that, think about those in the wilderness wandering. They were so synonymous with grumbling. Number 16, that the Apostle Paul would look back on that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. When we think about the general way that we talk when we're around others, is it with bitterness? Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31, intense hatred or resentment that is just filled in our voice. You ever known somebody who have a hard time even containing the bitter thoughts that just come out of their mouths? And it impacts all the relationships around them. And so we're going to give thought to our speech. And let that that speech, as Colossians 4 verse 6 says, be seasoned with salt so that we may know how we ought to answer every man. It's going to help us to be better Christians, but it's also going to help us to be better spouses. As our mate sees how we generally speak. But we also are going to be respectful in the way that we talk to our spouse. You know, the old Mills Brothers song is still true. You always hurt the ones you love, the ones you shouldn't hurt at all. It's harder when we are familiar and our walls are down for us not to find ourselves speaking in ways that we would not speak to strangers, co-workers, and those who we have business with. Even our brethren need to be very careful about how we speak to our spouse. And among the things that we might say, I want to pick out just two for the sake of time. One of those is clamoring. Clamoring is in that same exact context that we saw a moment ago in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31 of the things that the new man is to put away from his life. And that word clamor means an angry outburst. Paul uses a very similar uh, word in Galatians 5 and verse 20. It's a different word but a similar meaning. That is outbursts of anger. It's a passion and an anger that fills us so much that it just boils over. And if we're not careful, it'll happen in the marriage relationship and it will erode the respect. What can happen when that happens is that maybe a husband and wife fight unfairly like that. They use words and tone and hostility that grows and heightens. And maybe after all of that's done, they make up with one another. But even though they make up, the damage from that argument has been done and we set patterns and habits that's very easy to fall into. We're going to be careful to be respectful in the way that we speak to our spouse. You know, it used to be said in a preacher's meeting down in Mobile, there would be guys from all over the place that would come and speak to that, and what they would say is the ground rules was that you can disagree, but don't be disagreeable. 
It's a great principle for marriage. We're going to disagree. We want to be very careful not to be disagreeable. Not to engage in these passionate outbursts that show us having out of control, undisciplined lives. Another area where we want to be careful to speak with respect to our spouse is with regard to honesty. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.25 says, Let lying be put away from you. And think about how honesty is so fundamental to building respect because in building respect, what you're building is intimacy. You're building trust. It's making the decision once and for all, not in the moment, that you're going to tell the truth no matter what. And it breeds security. If intimacy is the, call, uh, is the effect of, uh, uh, from honesty, then security is that which is built even on top of that. If we find ourselves honest with one another, it's going to be transformational. If we can't be open in our communication with one another, then it's going to be very difficult for us to be close and to respect each other like we, we should. And so when it comes to the way that we speak to one another, I've heard it said that we're all either building bridges or walls. Bridges and walls can be made of the same material, but they serve very different purposes. A wall is a barrier that keeps you from what's on the other side, but a bridge is that which is a connection between you and and the other thing on the other side. In our marriages, we can build respect in the way that we talk to one another if how we talk is that which is conducive to that. We also want to be very careful about how we talk about our spouse. One of those activities that it's very easy for us to fall into is gossip. And it's not uncommon that married couples may engage in gossip together about other people. I know that's a shock, but that happens. Husband and wife maybe are even coming away from some social situation and they're talking about someone else and that's not good, it's not healthy. But it's even uh, it's as bad, certainly it's worse for the marriage relationship, when we find ourselves gossiping about our mate. To sympathetic friends and family members, as we give them our decidedly one-sided point of view about the strife and the difficulties that we have in our marriage. And if our goal is to try to solve the problems in our marriage... How difficult do we make that when there are other people who know the down and dirty on our mate? We want to be very careful about how we deal with our mate and their reputation and their character. Because whenever the problems get solved and we want to move forward, we want to make that as easy and as healthy as possible. When we think about how to build respect in our marriage, it begins with what we let live in our minds and what we think with regard to our spouse. But it also extends itself to how we talk, how we talk generally. It impacts our spouse. How we talk to them and how we talk about them. But then third, respect is demonstrated in the way that we treat one another. Consider just a few of these. That First of all, we're going to practice the golden rule. I heard this a long time ago. I wish I could tell you as I stood before you that I have always lived this perfectly. I strive my very best to. I think it's an important principle. One of the most impactful that I've ever heard. Never do anything in your spouse's absence that you would not do in their presence. When we think about the golden rule, we need to be very careful about how we allow other people to speak to our spouse, especially our children. 
What's going to happen when we're in the child-rearing phase of life is that our children are very smart and they see dad and mom sometimes as a force to be divided. And if maybe they can divide them, then maybe they can get their way. We don't blame them for that. They're just playing the angles they know. But we play a part in that. And husbands, wives, we defend our spouse. If our children are disrespectful or they're disobedient or they're not doing what they've been told by their their mom or dad, then we're going to come to our spouse's defense. Maybe we don't always agree with what our spouse has decided in that moment. Don't have that discussion in front of the kids. You stay united there and go and talk about it somewhere else. Practice the golden rule and also in that. Pursue the happiness, the joy, and the security of your mate. Because isn't that what you want in your marriage? Joy, security, and happiness. And if that's what you want, that's what you give to your spouse. Put your mate before yourself. This is a dangerous exercise. I think we see this is the purpose of Philippians. The Apostle Paul, in example after example, talks about how it's the life of Christ. It is the example of Christ. It is the way to have the mind of Christ. And he gives examples. He says, I, Paul, have put others above myself. Christ put others above self. Timothy, Epaphroditus, and again he says, myself, I put others above myself. And in marriage, that's something that's going to help us to give respect to our mate. And here's what makes us afraid to do that. We say, what if I do that and they don't? Don't worry about that. Be the best spouse that you can be. Be respectful by putting your mate before yourself. Love your spouse. You know, it's not just a command that's given to the husband. And this love is defined for us so that we don't have to wonder what it is. Go to 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, and you have 16 parts of that definition of love. In that love definition, it applies. Paul says to Titus in Titus 2, 3, and 4 that the older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands. And of course, in Ephesians 5.23, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And then, if we're going to treat each other with respect, it means that we're going to be faithful. That word faithful is found 33 times in the New Testament. And so often when we think about faithfulness, we're thinking about sexual faithfulness. But it's talking about faithfulness in the heart as well as in faithfulness in the body. It means to be depended upon. When we think about faithfulness, it's contrasted with that woman that's presented in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 18 through 21, who has this naive young man who she lures into her house and with her seductions, her flattering lips, she entices him. And she says, my husband has gone away on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him and he'll not be back until the full moon. Let's delight ourselves in caresses and let us engage and indulgence with one another. And with her flattering lips, she seduces him. Now what the Solomon's point is in Proverbs 7, 18-21 is that the man who gives in to the adulteress is in big trouble. It's a bad situation for that man. But have you ever thought about the adulteress's husband? When he left her behind, he assumed that she was going to be faithful to him, that he could trust her. And while Solomon is talking about the eternal consequences of a faithless individual, what's it like to live with such a person day by day? Thomas B. Warren says that we need to make sure that our spouse is sure of us and then be the kind of person that is worthy of such respect. 
We're to be respectful in our thoughts, in our speech, and in our action, in our marriage. It's a constant variable for us to work on. It's like that definition of love. When we apply it to our marriage, love is patient, love is kind. And all the way through that definition, there are challenges to us. We'll never do any of it perfectly, but it lays before us the criteria that can help us to fulfill what God wants for us in our marriages. We're trying to keep the marriage plane up in the air. There was a lady named Linda McGurr. Linda McGurr was a sailor, and she sailed to the island of Kinawata. And while she was on that Pacific island, she came across a little jotted out note that said that Johnny Lingo gave eight cows to Sarita's father. And as she wanted to know more about that, she began to investigate. She found out that Johnny Lingo was the most athletic, powerful, and wealthiest man on the island of Kinawata. And as he looked and tried to find out more about uh, Sarita, he found out that she was thought very widely to be a plain, homely, and unconfident girl. In fact, the talk around the island was that Sarita's father was fearful that he was going to be stuck with Sarita all of his life. But Johnny Lingo gave eight cows for Sarita and then went to the neighboring island of Nurabandi. So Linda McGurr dutifully got in her sailboat and sailed to Nurabandi to find Sarita and did not find a homely, ugly girl at all. He found a graceful woman full of confidence. Johnny Lingo caught up to Mrs. McGurr and pulled her off to the side and explained why. He says, there are a lot of things that are important to a woman, but perhaps nothing is more important than how she sees herself. And I would say that's true of everybody. And he says, on the island of Kinawata, she saw herself as worth nothing. But now she knows that she is worth more than any woman in all the islands. He said, I loved Sarita. She was the only one I wanted, and I wanted to be with her forever. I wanted an eight-cow wife. You know, all of us have the wife or the husband that we're willing to pay for. And I don't mean bribery, but what we're willing to invest in. And if we want a spouse that respects us and that we respect, if we'll respect them, they'll be filled with self-respect. The challenge that I want to leave with you is not for you to go home and ask your spouse to make sure they go back and listen to this lesson in case they miss something. I want you to think about the respect that you owe your spouse. You made vows, however many years ago it was. I don't know if you have access to that video footage, that you can go back and look at that and remember the love that you felt the courtship, those exciting days when you began to know one another better and you entered into that marriage thinking there would never be a problem that would ever stand in your way, that you were so in love. Time has a way of eroding some of that and tearing away some of the respect. Let's work on respecting our spouse, building a marriage where our respect for them allows them to have self-respect. I find it beautiful that of all the ways that our Lord could have illustrated the church and Christ's relationship to her, that he chose marriage. And he in indicates to us in the book of Revelation that the church is his bride, and he wants a bride ready for himself. Ephesians 5 tells us what he gave for the church and what he wants in return is our submission, our fellowship. 
Tonight it may be that you've never made that decision to make Christ not only your Lord, but the spiritual groom in this beautiful marriage relationship that consummates in heaven for eternity. Maybe you're ready to make that decision tonight. We'd love to help you make the decision to become a Christian. Act on your faith, repent of sins, and be baptized to have those sins washed away. Or perhaps as a child of God, there's some struggle in your life that you would like for us to pray with you for. I went back and I watched Jeremy's class on Wednesday night. He made a great point. We need each other. We need to rally around each other. And sometimes the things of this life are greater than we are and we need to go to the throne of God on one another's behalf. Maybe we can do that for you tonight. If we can, we'd love to do so. If you need to respond, won't you do so now as we stand and sing?